this week, we are at the closing section of the book of Joshua, chapter 22. Chapter 21 ended declaring emphatically all of the promises that God made going all the way back to Genesis 15 to Abraham and his offspring. They have all been fulfilled as Israel has entered the land. However, and this is the paradox, that doesn't mean that everything's done. Israel's entered the land. God's delivered on His end of the promises. But there still remains work to be done. There are still peoples in the land that Israel refused or neglected to drive out. Canaanite influences. And so, <clears throat> the, the rest of Israel's history is going to be living in that tension between God having fulfilled His promise and brought them into the land that He had promised to Abraham so that they would be a city on a hill, a light to the nation, salt and light, all that stuff, and them failing to live up to God's commandments and God's stipulations. Remember, Israel is a covenant people. They're not an ethnic people. Israel is not homogeneously ethnic. They're not all Jewish Israel was not all Jewish. Israel was people like Caleb, people like Rahab. We've met plenty of non-Jewish Israelites. So again, in your mind, make that distinction because it fails to get made over and over and over in the Bible and in modern politics. Not all Israel are Jewish. Not all Jews are Israel. It's not the same thing. And Israel in the Bible was always denoted by their covenant faith in God, not their bloodline not their parents, not their ethnicity. It was always, are you in covenant with God? Are you in faithful covenant with the great king, the great suzerain, as his faithful vassal? And that's what Israel's rest of their whole history is going to struggle with when they're in the land, is being a faithful vassal to their suzerain, to their king, who has done all of the good things that he promised. Now, will they, in response, live as his faithful subjects, or will they live as Canaanites? And that's going to be... Literally, everything after the book of Joshua is going to be revolve around that question. Will Israel live as Israel? Or will Israel live as Canaan? And that's, going to, that's, that's it. I mean, that, all the prophets, everything that comes after that is going to all rotate around that, um, that gravity focus of ideas. Israel is God's covenant people or Israel being like the nations. And that will always be the pull. Israel will always want to be like the nations. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. That's what happened in the New Covenant as well. Always want to be like the nations. Always want to be like everybody else. Always want to have the power and the prestige and the place of honor and the, be able to <clears throat> sit in the high places and make the laws of the land and control people. and all. all the allure of Caesar will always be there as a temptation for the followers of God. Old Testament and New Testament. And so... <clears throat> The last three chapters of Joshua end with the tribes settling, having settled in the land, and now questions about worship, questions about life in the land. And the first one begins when the tribes, so those of you that weren't here for uh, Numbers, back in the book of Numbers, two and a half tribes said, hey, we're over here on the east side of the Jordan River. We like it over here. We've got land for our livestock. It's, it's nice. It's what's today modern Jordan, which is a beautiful country. We like it. We kind of want to stay here. And there was a little bit of a rift. And Moses said, you're not, you're not going to stay here while your brothers go off and fight for their land. No, if you want this land, you can leave your women and your children and your crops and your elderly and all this stuff here. But your fighting men are coming with us into the land to take the land for, because we're all Israel. <coughs> so they agreed to that. And then 
That's what all happens in the book of Joshua. So now that the land's been settled, the tribes, those two and a half tribes, come to Moses and they say, okay, we've settled the land, now it's time for us to go back to our families, back to our tents. And so that's what's going to happen. Now that the land's been divvied up and everybody's been settled and given their assignments, the East Bank tribes are saying it's time for us to go home. And that's where we pick up in chapter 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those are the tribes on the east bank of the Jordan, and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But... Be very careful, and Hebrew literally says, guard yourselves. Be very careful to keep the commandment and the law, the Torah, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to obey His commands, to hold fast to Him. Literally, it says cleave to or cling to or be melded to. It's the word for welding stuff together. Uh, hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the summary of the Torah right there. You could just underline that verse. That's a summary of how God wanted his people to live in the Old Testament. And so Joshua is sending him away and saying, as you cross that Jordan, you are not going back into Moab. You're not going back into Ammon. You're not going back into Edom, all those Transjordan areas. You're going back as God's people. And you're going back as part of us. And so, here is the commandment. Be very careful. You are God's covenant people. Even though you're technically outside of the boundaries of the covenant land, you are still God's covenant people. So he reminds them of that very solemnly. Verse 6, Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given the land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe of Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua went, sent them home, he blessed them, saying, <clears throat> Return to your homes with great wealth and with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide it with your brothers, the plunder from your enemies. So you fighting men, go back, and you're going to go back wealthy because of all of the <coughs> stuff that we've gotten in Canaan. Take it back. You don't get to keep it. Divide it with the people who stayed behind and watched over everything because their role was just as important as yours. Which would fly in the face of how most people would think, no, I fought for this, it's mine. They stayed back with the tents and the old people and the herds, they don't get any of it. That, that's how the thinking would go. And, and Joshua's Josh commanding them, no, no, divide up all the wealth you've been given has been given to your people as a whole. Yes, you were the ones that fought for it, but God was doing the fighting, so you can't claim it anyway. It's for your people. There's a cool principle in there that goes again against common wisdom of the day. Verse 9, So the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan and returned to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. So far, so good. When they came to Gileoth near the Jordan, and that just means the territories of the Jordan, so we don't know exactly what spot, but just when they came to the Jordan... In the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built 
and NIV says an imposing altar, but literally it says an altar great to see. It means big. It means visible. A huge altar there by the Jordan. When the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gelioth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. That escalated quickly. Okay, they, they went back. On the way back, they stopped at the Jordan and on the Israelite side or somewhere near, they built an altar. Big deal. Abraham built altars and Isaac built altars. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal was Deuteronomy 13. And those of you that were here for Deuteronomy 13, you may recall, if not, there's a whole section of the website you can go and catch up and re-listen to Deuteronomy 13. But God commanded Israel, said, if you hear of any town in your midst, after, after you've settled, after you've entered the land, this was while Moses was alive, and you hear of any town that goes to worship other gods, you go to war against that town and utterly destroy them. So when the Israelites on the west bank of the Jordan River hear that the Israelites on the east bank of the Jordan River have built an altar, there's only one altar. The altar is in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, and that's at Shiloh. So building an altar means, what do you do on an altar? You offer sacrifices. That's what the word altar, mizbeach in Hebrew, it's, it's, from, the, it's a, from the word zavach, which is to sacrifice. So that's the only reason you'd build an altar in the minds of the Israelites. And so if they're building an altar, then they are already, as soon as they cross the, out of Israel, back into the impure, unholy west side of the Jordan River, or east side of the Jordan River, rather, they've already immediately, just like at Golden Calf Incident, they've already gone astray. They've already started to sacrifice to other gods. And so Israel hears about it, and they do what they actually do according to Torah. And they get ready, and they go to war. But <clears throat> before going and marching in battle, they actually send a delegation. They do the smart thing. They hear about something, but they need to verify it. This is, again, very good biblical thinking, good Torah guidance. Not just on the whim, we hear it, we're going to go to war, but let's investigate first. But we're ready to go to war, so... Things have escalated quickly. <coughs> so, <coughs> 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and each head of a family division among the Israelite clans. Among the Israelites. And that word clans, by the way, is the word Eleph. It's the word thousand. And we've talked about that before many times in this study, but that's just one example of whenever you see the word thousand in Hebrew, it's not always mean thousand. Sometimes it means clan. And this is an example in this verse. If you wonder what that has to do with anything, well, check the numbers study because we've talked about how many Israelites. Were there 2 million? Were there 50,000? There... There's fluidity in the numbers. But regardless, the head of the thousands, meaning the head of the clans, the head of the regiments, the, 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 the big men, whoever was in charge, and they go with Phineas to go confront the two and a half tribes. Now, why does Phineas matter? Why not send Eliezer? He's the high priest. Well, one, because the high priest leaving and going into another land, there's all kinds of impurity issues, and the high priest would have to cleanse himself again, and oh, it's just be a big nightmare. Two, Eliezer's pretty old at this point. He's no spring chicken, so <clears throat> this is not a journey you would take. But more important, 
when is the last time we really heard anything about Phineas? If you think back, book of Numbers, when there was an outbreak of a plague because of the sin of Israel in Moab, which is where they've gone back to, Phineas was the one who stopped the spread of the plague. When the guy, the Israelite, took the Moabite prostitute or pagan uh, temple prostitute and took her in front of the altar, in front of the ta- in the tabernacle, and started having sex with her right there, Phineas was the one that came up with the spear and jabbed it through both of them and killed them on the spot, stopping the plague. Phineas is known for being zealous for God, and also Phineas is the enforcer. He is not one to play around with. So sending Phineas is a big deal. If there's, a, if there's something involving idolatry and stopping potential plagues, you want Phineas there. And so that's who they send. So even hearing that Phineas is coming is big. It's kind of you know, like if you grew up, if my mom said, I'm going to spank you, I was kind of scared. But if she said, dad's coming home and he's going to spank you, then I was really scared. So Phineas is kind of like, hey, dad's coming. You know, Mama used a wooden spoon. Dad's going to get the leather belt kind of thing. So Phineas coming <coughs> is a big deal. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, etc., etc. Verse 15, when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against Him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? That's the sin that Phinehas stopped. That's the when they turned away and started sacrificing to the Moabite gods and having sex with the Moabite women. And all. Phineas is calling to mind, hey, remember last time I was involved with something? He said, up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And now you're turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow He'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, that was back in Joshua 7, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. So they're pointing out two things. They're saying, one... Remember the rebellion at Peor, book of Numbers, 25, and what that did disaster-wise to all of Israel. And two, remember Achan in our generation, just from our perspective, only 18, 19 chapters ago, less than that, I can't do math, but chapter 7, remember Achan, he sinned, he wasn't the only one that suffered, we all suffered because of his sin. So the Israelites are keeping the other Israelites to the concept of corporate solidarity, and they're saying, look, your sin, what they think is sin, is going to affect not just you, but all of us. Because we are one people united. The sin of one part of the body affects the whole body. And so there's not, everybody's not an island unto themselves. And that's part of why God in Deuteronomy 13 said, purge the evil from among you. If you do hear about a city that's turned away from me, drive them out, purge them from the body, cut them off from the people of God. Because we are the covenant people and we're in this together. Later, when the nation's going to split, there's going to be a civil war after Solomon dies, and the nation's going to split into Judah in the south and Israel in the north in the book of Kings. The first thing that Jeroboam's going to do when he goes up north and says, we're done with you, southern kingdom, first thing he does is going to build altars because that's declaring independence and declaring, hey, we worship God our way on our terms here in the north. And so he builds the altars there, and it leads the nation into idolatry. 
And that's what the whole northern kingdom suffers for until they're destroyed by the Assyrians. So this is a big deal from Israel's perspective. <clears throat> and they go and they approach and they rebuke, but now they give the chance for the West East Bank tribes to respond. So verse 21, Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. And this is where the NIV kind of, I don't understand. The NIV says, The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows. In Hebrew, literally, it says, God of gods is Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. God of gods is Yahweh. And it repeats it twice. So they're saying emphatically, there is no other God. We're not turning to Baal. We're not turning to Moloch. We're not turning to Asher. We're not worshiping other gods. <coughs> Yahweh is the God of gods. And they repeat it twice for emphasis. Yahweh is the God of gods. So they're affirming their covenant citizenship. And they're affirming the number one prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They are, they are rooting everything they're about to say in a confession that God is their God. Yahweh is their God. And he says, He knows. Let all Israel know. So God knows what we did, and now you go tell the rest of everybody what we did, because this is a giant misunderstanding. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to Yahweh, do not spare us today. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord Himself call us to account. So they're taking upon themselves an imprecatory oath. They're saying, if we've done what you think we've done, then by all means kill us. By all means wipe us out. But they go on to say, no. Verse 24, no, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord's made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. And so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. See, they realize that the crossing the Jordan has theological significance. And they realize, hey, in the future, someday the, the, the tribes in what is Israel proper may go, yeah, you guys east of the Jordan, you know, you don't belong to us. So, what they did, verse 24, uh, verse 26, that's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it will be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say to us, or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our fathers built. Not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. So they say, this altar was built as a replica. Yes, we built it to look like the ark, I mean the altar in the tabernacle, but it is a replica, it is a symbol that's going to stand for all generations and let them know that we are when we come and cross the Jordan, we are coming to worship because we are Israel as well. So this is a fear that they had, realizing the Jordan might be a boundary. And just because they don't do church like the other folk do church, they might say, you can't come to church. So they're saying, basically, look, we, are, we built this to, as a witness to our faithfulness to that altar in the tabernacle, not as a separate altar. So it was this symbol that could easily be misunderstood. That's the whole point, is the Israelites weren't out of their minds for misunderstanding it. 
I mean, you build altars to make sacrifices on. So this, they, they were right to think, or they, they weren't wrong in thinking, oh, they built an altar, which means they're turning to other gods. But what they realized, what looked to them like idolatry, when they actually went and talked to the people, instead of assuming the worst, then they realized, oh, it's actually not idolatry. There's actually another reason for it. It's actually faithfulness to God. It doesn't look like what we, you know, it's not how we would do things, but it is faithfulness to God. There's a lesson in there as well to take. <clears throat> so verse 29, they say, Far be it for us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of Israel, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have saved the Israelites from the Lord's hand. You have rescued, saved, and I believe he uses the word saved, which is the name of Joshua, Yeshua, you have saved uh, Israel from the Lord's hand. What does that mean? <clears throat> what it means is that Israel proper was about to go in and massacre their brothers. And if they had gone in hot-headed, not listening, and just guns a-blazing, so to speak, swords a-blazing, uh, then they would have incurred the guilt of God on them. And so the, the announcement of Phineas is like, hey, by... by by giving us the real facts and clearing things up, you've actually saved us. Because we almost did something that we would seriously regret and that would bring God's punishment upon us, not upon you. So it's a very much like disaster-averted uh, Cuban Missile Crisis situation, right? Like last minute, everything's building up. This is going to be bad. And then it gets diffused and things are okay. <clears throat> and so, verse 50, 32... When then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites had lived. And the Reubenites and Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So this rift that could have torn the nation in half at its very beginning is averted. There was zeal. People were faithful. You know, we get zealous about things of God. Religious people are easy to stir up. <laughs> every leader in the world has known that. That's why every leader in the world gives lip service to being a Christian if they're in a Christian country or a Muslim if they're in a Muslim country or, or a Jew if they're in Israel. Everybody knows you want to stir people up, appeal to their faith. And that can be a recipe for danger because that will stir people up. And so in this instance, what we see is before taking that step of action, they go and they go, okay, wait a minute now. Tell us why you're doing this. Plead your case. Clear this up before things go bad. And they do. And they did. It's this great illustration of, of handling conflict within God's people into a religious conflict. And it also illustrates a good lesson about being willing to listen when somebody's doing something that you don't think is kosher. That's not how we do it around here. That's not how my church, you know, tell me why you do that. Tell me what you mean by that. And, and, and you'd be surprised. You know, if you're raised in one church tradition, we only dunk for baptism. You got to dunk under the water. If you don't get fully immersed, it doesn't count. 
right? So I, I was raised around Baptists. I know that's the drill. Then they see somebody who's sprinkling or pouring, and they're like, well, that's not baptism. You know, and they try to divide up over it. Instead of going and saying, hey, why do you guys sprinkle and pour? And then the person goes, well, in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, God said, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. That's a pretty darn good uh, precedent for sprinkling being okay in the new you know, like, in other words, getting a chance and hearing and talking about these issues that we're so quick to divide over and to go to war over, this chapter is a good illustration of, of how it's actually better to approach, not in the sense of, hey, none of this matters, because they were ready to go to war, right? Their zeal wasn't in question. Phineas is Mr. Zeal. That wasn't in question, and they had precedent. Some things you do need to go to war over. Some things you do, you know, if somebody says, well, I do this because, and they give an answer that's totally idolatrous, then yes, you say, okay, well, I can't have any share in you. Yes, you've stepped outside of the faith. Yes, you're committing apostasy. Yes, this is heresy. It's okay to say that, but not before hearing and asking and inquiring and trying to find out, are are we on the same side? We're just doing things differently. Or you have concerns that we don't even know about. We don't even know why you did this, but you're concerned. And lo and behold, your concern's perfectly valid. So let me come together and reaffirm you and make sure that this doesn't happen. And this whole chapter is a beautiful chapter of, of reconciling problems among God's people. Not outside the church, but within God's people. Uh, and that's, that's a really cool way that this book of Joshua comes to an end. Is or I say comes to an end because all that's left now is Joshua is going to give a farewell speech, and then the covenant's going to be ratified, and then everybody dies. <laughs> and that's the end of the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, but it's really neat that before that, after the battles, after the settling of the land, there's there's this just beautiful instance of reconciliation and and disaster averted because people were willing to listen to each other instead of assuming the worst. And so I really like that. So, so think how you can incorporate that into your own spiritual life. You know, those of you Baptists and those of you Presbyterians and those of you Assemblies of God and those of you CME and those of you Methodists and all, because we got interdenominations here. Just, just think of this whenever you come up against stuff that people in other denominations do and you're like, I don't know about that. Um, filter it through the Joshua 22 grid. Uh, all right, we got to go. Um, there's seconds. If you want some, grab some. Next week, be here. Enjoy the food. Enjoy each other. I won't be here. I'll be on a training trip. But then the week after that, we're going to come back. And the last two weeks, we're going to wrap up Joshua and we'll be done. So have a great week, everybody. <laughs>